Hello, everyone, and welcome to Volume 5 of my podcast, Visions of a Blind Woman. Today, you are in for an absolute treat. I have with me Miss, not Miss anymore, but she'll clear this up, Deepa Garaya, who is a very, very busy and very talented civil rights trial attorney currently working with the D.C. Office of the Attorney General in the Workers' Rights and Anti-Fraud Section. She has a long history of legal advocacy for people living with disabilities with regard to physical and digital access and discrimination. In her spare time, yeah, right, she has spare time, Mm -hmm. she serves as litigation attorney for the National Federation of the Blind and, among other things, coordinates the advocacy efforts of the blind community, both state and federal. That makes me tired just talking about it. Welcome, Deepa. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here to share your time and your expertise with me and my listeners. So to begin our discussion, first of all, please confirm all that I just said. And I know there's a ton more, but we, you know, this is limited. <laughs> and then if you would expand on what I said just a little bit, that would be awesome. Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And, um, Just wanted to clarify that I am not a litigation attorney for the National Federation of the Blind. I would like to do more cases for the NFB. I've done a little bit here and there with Scott Labar as a volunteer pro bono attorney, but I do not officially do litigation work for the NFB. That's something I would like to get into. But uh, everything else is correct. I do work for the D.C. Office of the Attorney General. And I wanted to say here that I'm not I'm here in my personal capacity. I do not represent the D.C. Attorney General's office right uh, for this interview. And yes, I am now Mrs. Deepa Garaya Matthews. Got married in May, so now I'm Mrs. <laughs> and uh, Congratulations on that. <clears throat> yes, I do work for the Workers' Rights and Anti-Fraud section of the D.C. Attorney General's office. I started there in October. Prior to that, I was working at the Delaware Department of Justice for their Attorney General as a public rights project fellow, that was a two-year fellowship position, and it was for experienced attorneys transitioning to government from the private sector. And there I was helping to develop their civil rights pattern and practice work, discrimination and litigation. And I worked for the Division of Civil Rights and Public Trust and the anti-fraud section. And while there, I worked on several housing cases that involved tenants with disabilities and I worked on some anti-discrimination work like red redlining and housing and unfair lending practices, discriminatory lending practices. And then prior to that, I worked for about a year and a half at Disability Rights Maryland, where I worked on their developmental disabilities and Medicaid team. And there I handled Medicaid appeals. So those appealing denial of Medicaid services or cut back to their services for in-home community supports. And, you know, they were trying to get more hours or hours restored for their in-home supports so they could stay in their own homes and not have to go to institutions. So I handled their appeals for that and did appeal hearings and negotiated settlements and stuff like that. And then before that, my longest job was at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. I was there for five years and I worked on their disability rights project And that was my first legal job um, after law school. And there I worked on 
not only access to physical spaces uh, for people with disabilities, but I, I started developing, I did a lot of their digital accessibility work. So access to websites, apps, um, kiosks for blind individuals. And one of my biggest cases that I developed and worked on from beginning to end was against Barbary Bar Review, which is the number one bar prep course in the country. And it was not access their website and app and course were not accessible to blind students and low vision students because their website was inaccessible. And a lot of their course was online. So um, we worked on a case against them and ended up with a public consent decree to make their website and app accessible and to make materials available in different formats on a timely basis. So that was a, a big case. And I am really proud of that one. I'm interested right now. I do wage and hour work for workers' rights. It's nothing to do with disability, although I'm trying to bring disability into it. But I really would like to go back to disability rights work. So I'm trying to not only bring disability into my work right now, but also just do pro bono disability work on the side and eventually go back to that work. So that's that's my career path in a nutshell. Oh my God! Now, Deepa, you mm-hmm. had to start this career when you were 12. Because <laughs> all that experience, you don't look past, you know, 25. So. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I'm in my late 30s. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, what a wealth of knowledge and experience you've had. Now, before we dive into legislative advocacy, I think one of the reasons why I felt driven to start this podcast was because I say this over and over and people are probably getting tired of hearing it, but... When I lost my own eyesight 10 years ago, I was lost, Deepa. There was, I didn't know what was out there for blind people. I didn't have any resources. I, I searched when I could, you know, figure out how to use my little tiny uh, laptop notebook computer and I couldn't find anything. And so I want to add to what's already out there. If there's more, that's great. But I I know there are people out there who are searching for information and for resources. So Mm -hmm. that's why I want to do this. And part of that is understanding that as blind people, we all have a very unique experience in the way that we came to be blind. If you don't mind, I would love for you to share your own story about your journey through blindness. Sure. So, um, I was born blind. I could see a little bit when I was born, but um, I was born three months premature. So I was in the incubator and got too much oxygen in the incubator, which caused my blood vessels in the back of my eyes to burst Uh and uh, my retina to detach. So it's called retinopathy of prematurity. So that's how I became blind. And I grew up, you know, in my culture, um, blindness and disability is something to be kind of pitied and tragic. So my parents were really supportive. They were really encouraging in terms of education and everything, but they always wanted to have my blindness cured coming from India and everything. So I spent my early childhood kind of like, you know, in that phase where like, oh, you know, like I want my blindness to be cured and pray for your sight back and that kind of stuff. But then eventually, you know, grew up and was kind of past that and you know, did well in education and everything, but I still wasn't confident in my blindness. Like I didn't have the independent living skills that I needed. So I was living at home when I was in high school and before that, and, you know, didn't know how to cook, didn't know how to do laundry, that kind of stuff. And then when I went to college at UCLA, 
I lived in the dorms, but I would go home every weekend because I didn't know how to do laundry and all that stuff. So I would just go home. And eventually I met another blind person at UCLA who my then roommate connected me to. And she was just so, I I thought she was amazing. She would like walk around by herself on campus. I was kind of scared to do that still. She would just be so independent. And I was like, I want to be like her. So I, I met her and I began talking to her and she told me about the National Federation of the Blind and she was starting a West LA chapter at the time. So she really pushed me to join the chapter and I was hesitant because I'd been a part of some other blindness stuff growing up like the Braille Institute, which was a great program, but not really a lot of positive role models there. So I was like, I don't want to be a part of this, but she pretty much forced me to come to my first meeting and... <laughs> There, there were some amazing speakers. Um, I still remember uh, one of them who's was still part of the NFB, but not as active, but her name is Miriam Semantuala. And um, she talked about at that meeting, like how she went to, I think Iraq it was, and was helping women in Iraq, blind women in Iraq and her story working with them. And I was just so inspired. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I continued to go to those chapter meetings and eventually I became secretary of the chapter and then eventually president of the chapter when my friend uh, graduated and worked at that chapter for a while. And then I began when that chapter kind of fell apart, I went, I joined another chapter and grew in that chapter in the San Fernando Valley and continued to stay involved with the NFB of California and eventually joined the student division and became president of the student division there and just really grew in my leadership. I attended a national leadership seminar of the NFB and I really began gaining more confidence as I grew as a leader. But also my friend, Therese, her name is Therese McCabe-Wales. Her and Mariam became my friends and really advocated for me to attend the um, Louisiana Center for the Blind, which is the NFB training center. And they helped me advocate to my rehab counselor to attend an out-of-state training program that Rehab was hesitant. They wanted me to attend in-state school. And we, we know that the NFB training centers are just the best. And they, you know, they, they are taught by blind people. So they really encouraged me to go to LCB because they had been themselves. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be confident. So we really advocated. And eventually I did get it, get to go to the Louisiana Center. So in the middle of college, I was there in college for two years at the time. After my two years, I left college for temporarily and went to LCB, and I was there for about five months and was there, you know, living there and learned all the independent living skills. And that's what really changed my life. That's what really began giving me confidence and independence and where it led to where I am today. I learned about NFB philosophy. I learned about independence. I learned about a positive outlook on blindness and how... The problem isn't blindness. The problem is society and being treated like a normal person, equal person. I graduated from LCB in December of 2005 and then went back to school, finished college. Um, I was a lot more independent and really just got, began getting more and more involved in the NFB. And that's when I grew in my leadership and everything. Graduated from UCLA and then spent a, a semester in D.C. going, interning on the Hill. I interned on the Hill for Senator Dodd. I'll also have you know that during college is when I went to my first Washington seminar, and that's when I first came to D.C. and learned about legislative advocacy 
And that's what really exposed me to DC and to the Hill and to legislative advocacy. And I was like, I have to come back here. I, I love DC. I love this work. And that's what really motivated me to come back. So that's when I decided I want to do an internship on the Hill, did that first semester, and then went to law school, studied for the LSAT, went to law school. I used resources in the NFB to help me advocate for law school as well, because when I was applying to law school, a lot of the um, websites that you use to apply to law school, like the applications, were not accessible. And also, I was having difficulty getting accommodations on the LSAT, the law school entrance exam. So I used NFB resources to help me find an attorney and advocate for myself to get accommodations. And also, I was part of my first lawsuit um, with NFB to make law school the law school admission. It was against the law school admissions council to make their application process accessible. So that really was really cool and became my, my, I was a plaintiff in my first lawsuit. And then eventually got into law school and during law school, I interned in DC every summer. So every summer I came back to DC, interned here at various places like the White House, the DOJ, the National Disability Institute, and uh, some other places like EEOC, Disability Rights International, and knew that I wanted to come back. So then after law school is when I got my first job actually as a researcher um, for the National Disability Institute part-time. And then I began volunteering at the Lawyers Committee where I eventually got my first job, a legal job. So that was how I got involved in both DC and legislative advocacy and how I grew in in the NFB. And I think the LCB was just the turning point. Like I, I knew I wanted to be confident and independent, but I didn't know how to get there. And I was like too scared to do it on my own. And LCB is what really brought me out of my shell and really pushed me to to learn about the positive philosophy of blindness, to to get out of my shell and like push myself to be independent and to just really become confident. Like they they make you do these independent mobility routes to different businesses and get their address and come back. And of course, before that, they they train you on how to use your skills, learning directions and all that stuff. But Eventually, they make you go to these businesses by yourself and get those addresses and come back, business cards and come back. And then they do drop routes where they drop you off in the middle of a of an area and you have to figure out your way back. And so they really train you up until that point, and then they they make you go and do stuff that you're uncomfortable with. They also, you know, I did wood shop where I learned how to use power tools without sight and make and and make a jewelry box and drill and all that kind of stuff. We did rock climbing in. I believe I forgot what state it was in, but we did rock climbing up a real, a real uh, mountain. We did whitewater rafting to build confidence. We we did cooking classes where we had to make everything from scratch. Um, no, no mixes, no um, no using sight. So you're under sleep shades, or if you're totally blind, you know you're totally blind. And they make you do everything from scratch, and eventually you have to make a meal for forty people um, oh and God. do all the grocery shopping. Yeah, so it's like they have all these classes, including in computer and braille. And if you already know Braille, you learn on your, you get faster at reading Braille. So they have all these classes that really push you out of your comfort zone. And that's what really I needed. And that's what helped me get more confident and, and get to where I am today. And ever since LCB, you know, I began getting more and more involved with NFB and joining various affiliates. When I you know, moved to Virginia, I joined the, when I moved to DC, I joined the Virginia affiliate. And just began getting more and more involved and help. I wanted, I want to really just give back to others who are in my position. Like I want to, I want them to experience what I experienced, like the, the just freedom, the sense of freedom and independence that I 
that I got from right getting involved. Wow. Deepa, that is amazing. Okay, so my mind is reeling with with questions and comments. I one comment that I have, I remember um probably last year at the state convention or something, I I took you aside and said, I really want to talk to you, Deepa, but we don't have time now. One of the things that I have noticed about you in the years that I've been with the NFB, because you are a member of the Alexandria chapter, of which mm-hmm. I'm a member as well. And at the state convention, there was a, a moment when I had to sit and I was in the back of the room and I was just, you know, kind of taking it all in. And it was time to break and everybody was leaving and you were walking from the front of the conference room. It was actually the huge meetup room and you were walking to the back and you have always carried yourself with such grace. And I don't, I know that sounds like crazy. I know that sounds, you know, maybe a little patronizing and whatever, but I don't mean it that way. To me, the white cane was such a barrier. I hated that white cane. And even now, sometimes I don't use it when I should. You, you you know, you use the white cane and I would always say, well, how, what if you bump into a wall? What if you bump into people? What if you, how do you play that off? And I watched you walk from the head table out of the room and it was no big deal. It was like with such style and grace. And if you hit the wall, so what? You'll, you'll move to the left and got to the door. And it was like, it, it's a no brainer. And it, it was such a, a teaching moment for me, just watching you do that. And that so it is not a big deal. If you bump into somebody, if you bump into the wall, you just keep going. And for me, that was such a lesson. I, I know it sounds trite, but I don't mean it to sound trite. It was huge. I mean, yeah, the, the, the cane is a tool is a, a tool for independence. You know, your cane is your eyes. And if you bump into somebody, that's just, that's your part of your eyes. Like you just move around it, you know? So like the cane is, is a, is a tool to, to being independent. And that's how I right. see it. Yeah. And that's how you, exactly. Okay. So before we move on to, to legislative advocacy, you said that you didn't go to the Louisiana um, Center for the Blind until you're like second year in college. Yes. Right. Yep. So before that time, you were a successful student up to that time. What mm-hmm. were some of those challenges for you as a blind person in the education system? The biggest challenges, so I went to a elementary school from grade kindergarten through sixth or seventh grade where I was mainstreamed into regular classes more and more, but I also had a visually impaired classroom where I learned Braille and did some of those classes like math, science in that classroom, but it's mainstreamed for everything else. You know, I was with other blind people as well who are all in different classes. That's where I gained my Braille and VI skills, but then in education. But then when I I moved to where my parents currently live, Diamond Bar, California, which was a really good school district, and my parents wanted me to attend my local high school and middle school. So then I was their first blind student ever, and I was the only blind student. You know, my parents advocated for me to attend my local schools. That's when I began facing the most barriers um, and which inspired me to go to law school because I would have to get my books and materials brailed from my neighboring school district, which had a visually impaired classroom in it. 
and then have them sent to my school and then get my, my assignments that I would do in Braille to translate it into print. You know, that's when I began experiencing barriers, like getting my books super late into the semester in Braille, getting materials late. And that was my biggest barrier. Also, math and science were still pretty visual and having to navigate those. I had an aide with me who worked with me and helped me navigate those visual classes, like describing what was on the board and helping me take notes and that kind of thing. But it was a lot of work. You know, we would have to create our own tactile graphs and tactile stuff for math and science. And I didn't know the NFB at that time. So I didn't know the other stuff that was out there that I could have used. That's when I began experiencing a lot of the barriers. And my my aide who was with me, who I still keep in touch with to this day, she eventually became a Brailleist. Like she learned Braille and became a Brailleist, my own personal Brailleist because of all the difficulties we were having getting my stuff on time. So she, she learned Braille, became a Brailleist. We got a Braille printer for just me and she would Braille my stuff for me eventually. And that really helped a lot. And my mom helped a lot too by reading stuff to me because I didn't want to fall behind. And so she would spend hours reading to me after school because I didn't have my materials. So that's what inspired me to really, this is, you know, this is what made me want to go to law school to fight for disability rights. And when I got to college, there were still those, I had to advocate for myself to get my materials on time. So I had, there was a disability office at UCLA and I would have to get, buy my books and send it to them and so they could scan it or either scan it into a computer or get it recorded on tape. And I had to do that. I had to learn how to do that all myself. I had no aid to help me this time. So that was a barrier. But then eventually in my first semester of college, I learned how to use a computer because I didn't know how to use JAWS at that point. So in my first quarter or second quarter of college is when I learned how to use JAWS. And then I began reading things on my computer. And and can you tell uh, what is JAWS? Oh, JAWS is a screen reader. It stands for Job Access with Speech, and it's a talking screen reader that you can install on your computer, and it reads whatever is on the screen and what what you're, what you're typing. So that's how we get access to the computer and websites and all, and all that stuff. So that's when I learned JAWS and began getting better at advocating for myself and getting my materials on time and stuff like that. So while I did well in education, it was because I had that support system like my mom and my aide and stuff like that. If I didn't have those, I would have fell through the cracks in high school and middle school. And a lot of yeah. my friends did fall through the cracks who didn't have those supports. So the biggest issue I think is uh, just getting access to materials in an accessible format. And it still exists today. You know, now there's more digital braille, there's more computer access and braille displays and that kind of stuff that I didn't have, but it's still a problem. Like people still try to, people can get their books from the editor now in accessible format, but sometimes those formats are still not accessible or sometimes the editor won't give it to you on time. So uh, that stuff still exists today. Wow. Okay. So I really appreciate the the history and all of the anecdotes bring so much. One of the many things you do, Deepa, is organize and facilitate legislative advocacy for the blind community. I would love it if you would talk about what that means and why is it relevant to the National Federation of the Blind and its membership? Legislative advocacy is one of the ways that we advocate for the rights of blind people. And I think it's very important to do that because, you know, you can't just litigate. We use litigation and legislative advocacy to fight for our rights. And litigation takes a long time. It takes a lot of money and effort. And legislative advocacy is one of the ways that 
so many other people can advocate for rights and it's sometimes faster and it's way cheaper. So the NFB does a great job of doing both. And legislative advocacy is how we've gotten some significant things passed, like quiet cars, for example. Hybrid cars are uh, used to be really quiet with no noise whatsoever. And that was a hazard to blind people because we couldn't hear them when we were trying to cross the street. And the way we cross the street is by listening to the traffic patterns. So if we couldn't hear those cars, it was a hazard for us. And lots of other people too, like elderly people couldn't hear them. Little kids couldn't hear them. If your back is turned, you can't hear a car behind you. So we began advocating for a hybrid cars to have a minimum noise standard on them so that we could hear some sound um, when we're trying to cross streets. Um, and that's that was through legislative advocacy and eventually got passed. And now we have that standard in place. So that's an example of, you know, how people don't know about this issue and we brought it to the to the table. Another big issue that we have that we do legislative advocacy in is access to Braille in schools, making sure that blind kids learn Braille at a young age so that when they be, when they eventually lose their sight, they they know how to read Braille and not just rely on print. We've also advocated for parents' rights. Blind parents often have had their kids taken away, and it's still a big issue. And we've advocated for the rights of blind parents through legislative advocacy and lots of other issues. And I learned about all, a lot of these issues by attending Washington Seminar when I was in college and afterward. And I've gone to the Hill to advocate to um, members of Congress from then California and then since then Virginia. And I've also attended Richmond Seminar where we advocate to the local Virginia Assembly members for issues concerning just Virginians who are blind. You know, I've gained a lot through legislative advocacy. I've learned how to talk about legislative issues, how to talk to members of Congress and the Virginia Assembly, how to explain the issues in a succinct professional manner, even how to like dress professionally by attending this stuff and just how to educate people. And I think Legislative advocacy is the big way that we can educate the public, the members of Congress and, and local legislative representatives, and build relationships with them. It just serves a lot of different purposes. It's really important to fight for our rights. It's really important to establish relationships and to educate. And I think we do all of that through the work we do. Right. And as being a participant in both the Richmond Seminar, which is awesome, I've gotten really close with my um, delegate, Paul Krizek. And doing the Washington seminar, which is at the federal level, sometimes when you bring this up to the membership, you get crickets, right? It's like legislative advocacy. What the hell is that? You know, and it sounds boring and da da da. How do you get people motivated to get, to get into it and do it? Um, I, it's still a work in progress, but I do a lot of it through telling my own story of how I started out doing this work. Like I talk about my experiences with Washington Seminar. I talk about how I learned, not just that I learned valuable communication skills, but I also learned how to lead a team for this stuff, like how to lead a team to talk about these issues and lead a team to go around the hill. I talk about how fun it was, just how fun it was like working with my fellow colleagues and, and just going to different offices and talking about these issues. I talk about how it's a good way to tell your own personal story. Because when you do legislative advocacy, you don't just want to talk about the bill. You want to talk about how this is important to you. So it's a good way to tell your personal story in these meetings. And I talk about how much more confident I am because of this legislative advocacy and communication and and just the way I present myself. 
And just in the way that I interact with people, you know, I just learned so many skills from this work. And I talk about how without this legislative advocacy work, we can't advocate for our rights. Like we need to do this work in order for positive change to occur. So I try to just motivate people by talking about how important this is and how my experience was um, and all the skills I've gained uh, from doing this work. Right. And one of the things I've noticed now that I may be imagining this. So tell me if I'm wrong, but this last year with the Washington seminar, not the Washington seminar, the Richmond seminar, I noticed that there were several more young people there. And in fact, in my team, I had um, Bella and Casey Reyes and somebody else was there. And we were, we were talking about accessibility and education. There was some issue that was, that we were advocating for. And so I love that there seem to be more young people, high school students and college students getting involved in this. Am am I imagining that? Or is that something that's really happening? No, that's really happening. I think our work to, we're really pushing um, students to get more involved through our student divisions and by having a student, more student participation. So I think, and that's how I got involved. I got involved as a student. I think having more students come on board is, is, is happening through our, through our push to more of the students and being able to have them talk about their stories with education access and uh, technology access. They can really relate to this stuff. And so making sure they can relate and be able to tell those stories is a good way to get more of those people involved. And that's been working. Oh my God. It was powerful when, when we visited our, our state people, it was just so powerful when Bella and Casey were just sharing their, their particular stories. It was just, it made it real for the the delegates or the senators that we were talking to. Okay. So I listened to this gentleman at the last board meeting and he was giving kind of a history of blindness, particularly in the state of Virginia, but I'm sure this stuff is real in the greater United States. How have the issues evolved through the years? And one of the things that blows me away is that at one time in the state of Virginia, it was illegal for blind people to bear children. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, so how can you give a little, you know, history about how have these issues changed through the years to your knowledge? Before, I would say, the discrimination was more apparent. Um, there were more laws on the books that like not being able to bear children and stuff like that in place to prevent blind people from equal access to society and keep them separated, keep people with disabilities separated. There wasn't the ADA, there wasn't the Rehab Act. So blind students and other people with disabilities weren't allowed to attend public schools. It was okay to discriminate against blind people and others with disabilities in employment. And the discrimination was more outright. Now that we have the ADA and other laws on the books, it's more illegal to discriminate. There's not as much apparent discrimination, but there's more subtle discrimination, I feel like. There's more discrimination in employment, for example. They're not going to outright say, oh, we're not going to hire you because you're blind. But they, And they're not allowed to ask any questions in the interview process about your disability. But there's still discriminatory hiring practices that we see. There's still the bias that's there there's still this doubt of like, how are you going to do this job? You know, and that's why there's such a high, high unemployment rate among the blind community. There's more access barriers in terms of access to digital accessibility, like 
inaccessible documents. I, I in my job, I, I run across inaccessible documents on a daily basis because there's still this lack of education and how to make PDFs accessible, how to stop using screenshots and make sure that documents are text-based, how to um, make more software accessible like uh, SharePoint and other software that's used in the workplace. So there's more of that access barrier, those access barriers now where you don't have as much access to documents, software, that kind of stuff. Whereas before the only access barriers we faced were access to print materials and people could get around that by having them read, read to you or um, having them recorded. You know, there's more access to web difficulty with accessing websites and stuff that was accessible. Like for example, certain apps, we find that they eventually become inaccessible because when they're updated or developed further, they lose that accessibility because of the lack of education about this, this stuff. Mm. So we need to bring more of this accessibility stuff to the general public. We need to educate more of the general public on how they can make things more accessible, how important accessibility is and equal inclusion is. We need to get more laws passed like the ADA to include websites and uh, kiosks and and apps to make sure that those are included as public accommodations. I think we need to do a, a campaign more around employment, kind of like an affirmative action for people with disabilities in the workplace. I, I think education employment are the two top areas that have the most accessibility barriers and just making sure we focus more on those and educating more of the general public and getting more blind people out there in the main mainstream workforce would help a lot. Right. And I think the statistic I heard at one point was that 75% of the blind community are unemployed or underemployed. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. That's still, that's been a statistic for a long time and it's still there. You're right. And it's, it would, it's just not changing as much because blind people are very educated. It's not like they're not qualified. They're very qualified, educated, but it's just that bias that's out there. I've right. experienced it myself in the legal profession. They're just not getting hired because of bias and fears that still exist. Right. What's interesting is after being blind for a little while myself, I was starting to think, okay, I can't sit on the couch forever. What am I going to do? And I reached out, I think it was three years into my blindness. And I reached out to a a wonderful organization that I used to, to work for doing trainings for TSA supervisors, Bureau of Prisons, Air Mm -hmm. Marshals. And I contacted the woman who was the supervisor at the time, because she had recently contacted me before blindness and she was putting together some stuff in DC. And she said, Oh, I want to bring you on board. I want to do this. Da, 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 da. So the time came and I, I reached out mm-hmm. and I spoke to her a couple of times. And, and when I was newly blind, Deepa, I wasn't sure how to tell people I was blind. So I didn't for the first two conversations, we were planning, we were doing this and I was great and she was great. And then the third conversation we had, she was ready to write me in this proposal. And I thought, you know what? I better tell her that I'm blind now. So I did Deepa. I said, okay, Mary, um, you know, I just want to let you know there, uh, I am blind but I'm still wonderful. I'm still great. I'm still talented. I can still do it. Da, 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 da. And mm-hmm. she's like, the first thing out of her mouth was, well, oh, you know, I do have a relative myself that's blind and I'm used to being around blind people and da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. I never heard from her again. Yeah. And it was like, so apparent to me that, you know what, this is not going to be easy. Yeah. 
so one question I have for you, if someone is in that situation and they want to pursue, I didn't have the energy at the time or the, you know, the drive to pursue it. Mm-hmm. If they want to pursue it, what should they do? I would say you have to be persistent. You have to, if you really want to be in a job that, that you know you can do or an area that you know you can succeed in, don't give up. It's really, really hard. And I face that stuff. I face give the prospect of giving up all the time because it's so hard, but you have to keep going. You have to be persistent. Use the resources that you have to advocate for yourself. Like use the NFB, use your friends, use whatever you can to, sh- to show people that you could do this job and don't give up on applying. Don't give up on pursuing it because the problem is not you. The problem is society's fears and biases. And you have to be able to show them that you can do this. So not only be persistent, but get all the skills you can to be successful. Get the independent skills, get the independent living skills, get the the skills that you need to succeed in the workplace, like software, learn how to use the software with assistive technology, learn how to use, you know, whatever you need to know to do the job. Just don't give up. And if, if you have to do this, if if, the, if you can't get let in, then start your own your own business. A lot of blind people do that, where they have difficulty getting hired and then they just start their own practice. That's another way to do it. But it's really hard. It's, it's, it's a, just a work in progress. You have to keep going. You have to be persistent. And that's the advice I always get. And I know it's super hard, but you have to keep trying. And we're not going to change anything overnight. We have to keep pursuing it and educating the public about our capabilities, our, our talents, and just constantly having to prove ourselves, unfortunately, but that's what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So as a, as a, I guess this would be my final question for you. I know there are people listening to this that are experiencing blindness like I did. 10 years ago when I was scared, I was angry. I thought there, my life was over. My career was over and it was gloom and, and despair all around me. And you have been so successful and, and knocked down barriers. I want to know what advice would you give to someone like me who is newly blind or who is losing their eyesight, hanging on white knuckled, you know, holding on to that little bit of it left. Um, and scared and not sure what their lives will be like after blindness, not only with their careers, but personally inside in their lives, what would you tell them? I would say that blindness is not a tragedy. My life, I love my life and, and I'm totally blind. And I would say like the best thing you can do is to embrace and accept, accept your blindness, accept your disability and know that there are so many successful positive role models out there for you that are blind and you should find those like in the NFB or whatever, wherever way you can find them, find those positive blind role models and, and get involved with them. Like they're the, they're the ones that are going to motivate you and advocate for you and help you and get to get to a good place in your life. And you should just accept and embrace your blindness and get the training that you need, get the, get the independent living skills training that you need, even if it means getting out of your comfort zone, because that's what you really need to be successful and to live your life in the way you want. So get those skills that you need and find those positive blind role models and you're going to be fine. Like there's, it's not the end of the world. You shouldn't 
listen to society's negative notions about blindness and about disability because they don't know about this. We who are blind know about this and we know that it's not a tragedy. We know that there is positive, happy happiness after blindness and we're experiencing it right now. So the best thing you could do is is get involved, find those positive role models, get the training and you're going to be just you're going to be just fine. Like you're, there's there's no need. I know it's scary. I know it's challenging. But that's anything in life. Anything in life is challenging. We all have our own issues whether we're blind or not, um whether we're disabled or not, and this is just one of those issues and there's ways to get past it. Wow. Thank you so much Deepa. It has been a pleasure. It has been an honor. It has been enlightening for me. And I'm sure for people who are listening, just to, to hear you and your experiences. And I am so grateful that you could be here today and don't hang up. Okay. And <laughs> for everybody else, I know, I know there are people out there who are just sitting on your couch and growing roots. Don't do it. Don't do it. You got my email, ReneeFValdez at gmail.com. There are people out here like Deepa, like the students I talked to last week, like Evelyn Valdez, like Renee Valdez. We are out here. We want to get you off of that couch and cut those damn roots and get you involved because we need you out here. So don't give up. Keep plugging away. Don't forget, I put out a new episode on Tuesdays. So tune in and would you please follow me already? God bless America. And hasta luego. It's gonna be a ride.